I'm Emily Williams, and this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly podcast from the Post and Courier. The start to this school year in South Carolina was a pretty chaotic one. The Delta variant of COVID-19 was quickly spreading, infecting students, teachers, and staff, and sending people into quarantine. And as we've discussed on this podcast before, schools couldn't require masks. Seven weeks into the year, at least 15 districts, 233 schools, and 156,169 students had reverted back to virtual learning. Today, we'll be talking with Hillary Flynn, editor of the Post and Courier's Education Lab, a recently launched watchdog enterprise unit within the paper that's focused on examining systemic issues within our state's education system. Hillary gave us some details on what we can expect from the Education Lab, and she shared what went into recent reporting, which followed the stories of three people experiencing those first chaotic weeks of school from different perspectives. A high school student nervous about going back to school in person and reconnecting with their friends. A teacher excited to be teaching in the classroom again, but cautious about COVID-19. And a parent who hoped for a return to normalcy and sent her kids to school without masks. All right, here's Hillary. So briefly, what is the Education Lab and how is this different from the education coverage that the Post and Courier was doing prior to launching the lab? It's more of an enterprise unit. Beforehand, we've been doing a lot of daily news coverage on education issues in the state, but we really wanted to tackle some of the systemic problems within South Carolina schools, as well as look at more in-depth future issues that are happening at individual schools in South Carolina. So what the Education Lab is doing is we're going to be spotlighting some stories that have a lot of humanity in them with in-depth feature reporting every couple weeks. We're going to be doing some large-scale data projects that are set to launch next month that track school progress, school performance, that look at the federal COVID relief fund money that the schools are getting. In addition to that, we'll also be doing some investigative series that, fingers crossed, will start coming out at the early part of next year. I know the team is still being filled out, so who's on the Education Lab now, and who all will be involved once that team is filled? Right now, it's me, Hillary Flynn, my reporter, Libby Stanford, who's excellent, can't say enough great things about her, and on Monday, we'll actually be getting a new employee, Susan Gregory. We're getting another reporter in addition to that. Right now, we're still in the midst of the hiring process. And we will also be hiring a data reporter, too, that will be part of a partnership we have with the University of South Carolina. So speaking of that data, what are some of the metrics that the Education Lab will be tracking? You know, how do we, how do we measure success in schools beyond test scores? we're not just looking at school's academic performance. We're looking at sort of what the whole school experience is for the children who go to school there. Of course, we are looking at academics like eighth grade reading scores and ACT scores, but we're also looking at climate factors like the teacher retention rates in the schools and incidences of bullying and other metrics of school safety. And then we're going to be using that just to see how a school's performing. In addition to that, we're not just looking at a school's current 
current performance. We're going to be looking at how that school has progressed over the past five years. So we're trying to see like what schools are like really up and coming and what schools, you know, aren't. And then we're sending our reporters out to do some shoe leather reporting to find out why this is taking place in the schools, especially for the up and coming schools. Ideally, what we want to do is see if they are using practices that other schools that are similar to them can emulate. While we do want to, you know, expose corruption and wrongdoing when that happens, like the ultimate goal is to make education better in the state. There's a strong solutions journalism aspect, which is kind of exactly how it sounds. Like we're trying to find solutions to existing problems. And we're trying to look at all schools across the state and urban areas and suburban areas and more rural areas that have students of all different types of demographics and really see ones that stand out to use as models for improvement. So you, along with reporter Libby Stanford, recently put out a long-form story through the Education Lab that takes a more personal look at what it was like for a few different people to live through the first seven weeks of the school year in South Carolina. So what was the core idea for this story? What were you hoping to do with it that would be different from all the daily coverage that's followed the many, many updates of this start to the school year? The core idea behind it was really just to show the humanity involved. I think with these discussions of masking and vaccines, it's become so political that a lot of people forget that there is actual, you know, human beings, this infects and human beings in the school system who are vulnerable, just trying to do their best. And the core idea of this was just to remind people of it and show that these teachers, that these students, that even those who were like protesting the masks like are actual people and what they all have in common is that they're very scared right now. This story and the education lab in general has a statewide focus. So how did you decide which parts of the state to focus on to give an idea of the range of experiences that were happening throughout South Carolina? We really wanted to concentrate on which districts were tackling the spread of the Delta variant in different ways. So Charleston County has its mask mandate. Dorchester District 2 like had the entire district go virtual for seven days. And then Anderson 5, they actually offered vaccine incentives to both teachers and students, offering $500 to teachers and staff if they can show they were vaccinated, and also $100 to students if they had similar proof and also, you know, parental approval. So at that point, you've zeroed in on those three specific districts. Then how did you decide who to talk to to, again, get that mix of different perspectives on those first weeks of the school year? We did talk to a bunch of different teachers, several different students, several different parents within each of the districts. And then we found out whose voices best encapsulated sort of everyone's experiences, or at least like everyone from like their viewpoints experiences. And we blew up that narrative where we actually decided to follow what they were undergoing each week for seven weeks. Describe those three people that you ended up focusing on. There was a student and 
a teacher and a parent. We looked at a student in high school at Charleston School of the Arts named Isis Hanna, who had just gone back to school after learning virtually for a year, whose younger sister actually had cystic fibrosis. She was very worried about how the Delta variant would affect her family from a health perspective and looking at that experience. And um, one of Libby's sources was also the woman that we profiled Amanda Miller, who did not want her kids to wear masks in school and showing just her experiences of wanting her kids to have a normal school year and that, you know, not happening because the pandemic persists. And when she learned about the vaccine incentives that Anderson 5 was offering, actually got so incensed by it that she went to a protest for the first time. And then we also reached out to a teacher, Mary Rita Watson in Dorchester too, who teaches remedial reading classes for students in elementary school. And you know, the kids in elementary school can't get vaccinated right now. So we looked at her experiences, just witnessing the kids in the cafeteria, taking off their masks, to eat, playing, you know, normal kid stuff that no matter how hard we try to control a lot of it, we can't. So how did the school year start for these people? What were their expectations going into their first days of school? I know the teacher, Marita, she wore a mask and she was there a week early for a professional development week. You know, she was like a bit more reserved. She watched professional development sessions from her classroom over Zoom, but you know, she saw her colleagues saying hi to each other, standing close to each other, but she didn't think it would be that serious. The high schooler, Isis Hannah, she was, you know, nervous to see her friends again and hope that everything would be similar. The dynamics would be similar to how they were before the pandemic, but she believed it would be pretty safe at her school. Everyone was masked and everything. And the woman, Amanda Miller, thought it would be a normal year too. Like her kids could play on the playground with their friends again. They'd be able to kind of, you know, sit together with their friends at desks. That's an interesting dynamic because with a parent like Amanda Miller, her expectation and hope for the quote-unquote normal school year was that her children would not need to wear masks. You had other families, for example, Isis Hannah's family, where their expectation and hope for a normal school year involved all students wearing masks and that creating a better sense of safety from the virus. But really, neither of those things happened, right? Because there was a mix of some students wearing masks and others not. So we've talked about the mask-related issues with South Carolina schools on this podcast before. But just to recap for people, what was the situation with mask policies in South Carolina schools at the beginning of this school year? So schools weren't allowed to mandate masks because of a provision in the budget this year that said that different school districts funding could be threatened if they actually instituted a mask mandate. But school districts could recommend that students in their districts could wear masks. So at the beginning of this seven-week period, Charleston County School District passed a mask mandate, but then they said that they couldn't really, you know, enforce it. Kids who didn't wear masks to school, like, were still allowed to be in school. Though towards the end of the story, you see they actually found this way around that budget rule where they decided to go back and use their savings that weren't, you know, tied to this year's budget where the rule was 
to fund the enforcement of this mask mandate. Charleston County actually just extended its mask mandate until November 12th. We'll be right back with Hillary after this quick message. Hi, I'm Thomas Novelli. I'm a politics reporter for the Post and Courier based in Charleston, and I'd like to invite you to a special event I'm hosting next Tuesday, October 19th. I'm taking over Palmetto Brewing's weekly trivia night. We'll be testing your knowledge of the Palmetto State and raising a pint, or a few, to investigative journalism. A portion of all the beers sold that night will benefit the Post and Courier's Public Service and Investigative Reporting Fund. Trivia starts at 7 p.m. Tuesday at Palmetto Brewing. We'll see you all there. Let's go back to these people, the student, the teacher, and the parent whose stories you were following over the first seven weeks of school. You said they all came in with these expectations or hopes of a more normal school year. When did that start to shift for each of them? When did they see that the Delta variant was really greatly impacting the beginning of this school year? I know for the teacher in Dorchester District 2, it was when she went to the cafeteria on the first day of school, actually, because she usually goes and helps, you know, kindergartners open their cartons of milk and, you know, do help them really navigate the world as kindergartners. But she saw, like, you know, the students just playing, taking off their masks, swapping food, and she thought, this is a super spreader event happening right before my eyes. And for the high schooler, it was Isis Hannah. It was when she got home from school, having been back in high school for the first time, really excited, seeing all her friends, everyone's masks and pretty safe. And then hearing her younger sister, you know, that wasn't the case at her younger sister's school. Things in Dorchester, too, really came to a head at a school board meeting on September 1st. What happened at that meeting? And then also, what was the teacher's reaction to what happened? At the meeting, it was kind of wild. School board meetings have gotten really, really, really wild during the pandemic. There was this member of the school board, Barbara Crosby, and she's staunchly anti-mask. And a lot of people in the district who are anti-mask see her as their voice on the school board. The assistant superintendent gave three options of closing schools for three days, seven days, 10 days, and they had to vote. And it was supposed to be a closed session. People weren't supposed to like comment or anything. And Barbara Crosby decided to just read text aloud. She was getting about all the people's thoughts of what was happening. And then when they eventually voted to go virtual for seven days, she threw up her hands, stormed out of the meeting. And then later it came out that she had been late to the meeting and she left her grandkids locked in the car, essentially. Then she was eventually charged later to that. She was arrested and everything. So it's just like a bit of drama happening while like this larger scale um, story of the Delta variant is going on. What about the teacher in Dorchester too? What was her reaction to the decision made at that meeting to go virtual for seven days? I think it's complicated for the teachers because no one really wants to teach virtually. So Mary Rita, she teaches remedial reading for students and it's a lot harder for them to, you know, learn how to read and write well virtually and get that kind of one-on-one attention in the virtual class. So while they like supported what the school district did, they also considered it like a band-aid for a larger problem. And, you know, they're 
we're saying things like, what if there's another variant? Are we just going to have to keep doing this? Even when Marietta's students came back to school, like they were really far behind where she expected them to be. She thought that their reading comprehension was a lot further along when they were virtual than it actually was. Let's go back to the parent, Amanda Miller. You spoke briefly about how she felt about the district's policy that was incentivizing teachers and students who are old enough to get the COVID vaccine. Again, that was $500 for teachers who got the vaccine and $100 for students who got the vaccine and had permission from a parent. So how and why did she get involved in more publicly opposing that policy and what happened when she did that? She just felt like medical decisions should really be left to the parents. She felt like these, for the students especially, like this was akin to bribery. So she got very upset and then went on social media and she found this Facebook group or was invited to this Facebook group called the District 5 Guardians, who were just a group of like-minded people who were very, very upset about this vaccine incentive. So she joined the group. They were planning a protest. And then, yeah, she decided to go. The group's been protesting since then. After our story ends, they actually doxed the superintendent and leaked his private cell phone number. So it's, you know, it's been very tense. The high school student, Isis Hannah, how was she feeling as the school weeks were progressing? And how was her family feeling. At the beginning, there was lots of confusion. Her father, Jeff, because with the mask mandate, because the mask mandate happened, then he was confused about like whether or not it could be enforced. And then he heard it wasn't being enforced. So he was just very, just very stressed out and felt like to a degree, like pretty helpless to protect his daughters. But like the parents had told us multiple times, again, like they're worried about their daughter's health, but they were also worried about their daughter's so- social and emotional health, having not seen their friends really like been learning virtually for such an extended period of time at that point. And what really struck Jeff in particular, he said, is his youngest daughter, she'd been, you know, sick her whole, like essentially her whole life. And his friends and other parents had always been like pretty careful around her. And if she seemed under the weather or was, you know, really experiencing some hard time, they'd call him immediately and they'd take really good care of her. But now that everyone's so worried about their own kids or health or even to an extent their own kids' civil rights, they're paying a lot less attention to his daughter. And it made him really have to like kind of step up and fight for masking and this mask requirement in a way that he hadn't expected to. He had to keep calling the district board members and the principals going like, you have to keep my daughter safe. So how many districts and schools at some point throughout that first seven weeks of the school year had to go back to a digital format because of the spread of the Delta variant, the number of cases and quarantines. And at what point in those seven weeks did you start seeing that pick up, you know, more districts, more schools, more students having to go back to virtual learning? What we did during the story was we tried to track what the situation was like at the end of each week. So for the first two weeks, there aren't like no one's really 
virtual or anything. And then you start to see it pick up the like third week, the fourth week, and then by like the fifth week, there's this big boom, like the numbers, you know, really, really, really start to skyrocket. Since this first seven weeks, the number of school and districts closing has gone down a lot. So things are more stable, like with regard to going virtual or having in-person learning. But we really want to show how chaotic this period was. Looking ahead at the rest of the school year, what's next? What are some of the big topics or issues that people can expect to see coverage on from the education lab? Well, again, we're trying to do in-depth feature stories, one every three or four weeks. So we'll have one coming out at the end of October that I can't really talk about yet. But what we're also looking at soon is why exactly the first seven weeks of school were this much of a mess. And we're tracking like what politicians knew before about the health effects of the Delta variant and just how fast it would spread through schools before schools opened for this year and when they knew it and different things like that. We're going to have a story about that coming out later this year. In addition to that, we're also looking at where this COVID relief money is actually going. We're going to be coding all of, I swear, our job's more interesting than just coding all of the budget sheets, but, and then tracking where the money's going through aggressive shoe leather reporting and interviews. And again, we're launching a big data project about school performance in progress at the beginning of next year. All right, that's all for today. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with Hillary to talk about the Education Lab, you can reach her at hflynn, that's H-F-L-Y-N-N, at postingcourier.com. She's also on Twitter at Hillary Suzanne, and that's Suzanne with one N. We'll also include her contact information in today's show notes. To learn more about supporting this kind of reporting, you can visit postingcourier.com slash donate. If you want to get in touch with us at Understand South Carolina, you can email us at understandsc at postingcourier.com. We're also on Twitter at understandsc. We'd love to get your feedback. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Posting Courier. Our intro music is by Billy Fountain. You can find his music on Spotify. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with the latest headlines at postingcourier.com. We'll be back next week.